Good morning. We're in James chapter 4 this morning. We had all six of our kids home for Christmas, and we played more games in those few days than we had the previous year. We cleared off the pool table and played pool. We played video games like Black Ops. Uh, all I do is walk around and get shot. I never figured it out. Played video soccer. We went old school and played Sorry and Twister. In fact, I'm told there are pictures on Facebook to verify that I played. Most people like to play games. There's one game that's been popular among Christians since the first century. It's not a good game. In fact, everyone will tell you they don't like to play. But we play anyway. If it came in a box down along the edge, it would say a Lucifer production because he originated it. He was the first to play and he mastered the game. It's a simple game. It's not hard to learn. You don't even need to read the instructions. It's for all ages, although adults seem to be much better at it. The game is called Playing God. And there's only one requirement. And that is, you must be puffed up with pride. There are two versions to this game. There's the version you can play with others. And there's the version you can play by yourself. And James explains those two versions to us at the end of chapter 4. The first is playing God with others, and that's in verses 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? There's only one judge, and you're not him. There's only one judge's seat, and you're not sitting in it. There's only one gavel, and you're not holding it. So when you act like the judge, the jury, and the executioner of other people, you are playing God. You are usurping His position and His authority. And that's a game you have no business playing. And so James says in verse 11, do not speak against one another. Now, criticism has become a very natural part of life. We're, we're sort of conditioned to judge. If you've watched any football games this weekend, the commentators pick out the flaws of the players and second-guess the coaches and question the calls of the referees. And we're conditioned to do that. We hear the president give a speech, and immediately a panel of critics come on and tear his speech apart. We're conditioned to think that, that we're at the Olympics, and everything's an event, and we're, we're the Russian judge. 
How was that sermon? 6.5. Too much splash on the entrance. How was that meal? Honey, I hate to tell you this, but you've been chopped. See, we're so conditioned that many of us have failed to draw the line between being a critical thinker and being downright critical. So I want you to take a step back this morning and think about some of the words that have been coming out of your mouth and ask yourself, am I criticizing everything? Am I criticizing everyone? Am I judging? Am I condemning? Am I speaking evil of others? And if so, you're playing the game. James says in verse 11, don't judge and don't speak against. And those two things come as a package deal. Initially, I judge another person. And then because I have declared them to be guilty, it justifies me to speak against them, to criticize them, to tear them down. Now, we all know how this works. The critic's diving board is a little word in our vocabulary. It's the word, but. That's the word that launches us off into criticism. I don't want to be critical, but she's a nice girl, and she has a nice personality, but, and we're playing the game. We're playing God. We're acting as judge. Now, why do we do that? Why do we play the game? What's the prize that we're looking for in playing this game? Well, I thought of two things. Number one, it eases our own guilt. It excuses our own faults. Paul asked a great question in Romans 2.3. He said, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and you do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And the answer to that question is yes. Somehow we think in our minds, if I point the finger at you, somehow God is going to overlook me. That's really the strategy so often today in our courts of law. People don't seem to defend themselves, they criticize other people. They criticize the police investigation, it wasn't done well. They call the defendant a racist. Or they attack the victim's character and hope that by doing so, they will escape judgment. I think we do the same thing with God. I think that if I can crawl over into the jury box, or if I can slip over behind the prosecutor's table, maybe... God will forget that I'm on trial. We judge others to excuse our own faults. 
And we're good at that. I mean, think about the way you describe your own faults. If you're like me, you say, I'm not critical, I'm discerning. I'm not a gossip, I'm just sharing a concern. I'm not lazy, I'm just mellow. I'm not negative, I'm realistic. I'm not unreliable, I'm flexible. But when I deal with another person, I raise the standard. When I judge another person, I don't cut you any slack. And so the first prize in this game is to excuse my own faults. But there's a second prize, and that is it appeases my pride. It's no accident that this prohibition against judging in verse 11 follows the exhortation to humble yourselves in verse 10. Because judging other people is an expression of pride. And that's why James says in verse 12, who are you? Or who do you think you are when you judge other people? See, judging is born out of a self-righteous attitude. Judging comes out of an attitude of superiority. And when I judge other people, it bolsters my pride. When I tear you down, it gives me a feeling of being built up. And that's why when someone is gossiping, we're usually all ears. You can be in a room full of people, they're all talking, and somebody starts to gossip in the corner, and it's like E.F. Hutton. But wait a minute, I want to hear this. Why do we want to hear it? Because if I hear about somebody else falling, it makes me feel better about myself, my pride, and excuses for my faults. Now, we can do this two different ways. There's first-degree slander and second-degree slander. First-degree slander is when you just rip into somebody. No holds barred. I'm just going to tear you down. That's first-degree slander. Second-degree slander is more common. That's when we sugarcoat it. That's when we say things like, I wouldn't be telling you this if I wasn't concerned. I'm just sharing this with you so you can pray about it. Let me tell you something. Gossip is gossip. Even when you wrap it in a prayer request. And a lot of times prayer chains can quickly digress into gossip grapevines. We said early in the book of James that many of his points in this book come out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. This passage is no different. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, as he said on the mountain, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do not judge. Why did Jesus tell us not to judge? Well, because he pointed out that our standard of judgment is typically skewed. I would rather judge the sawdust in your eye than the telephone pole in my eye. 
And Jesus says, first, worry about your own faults. And then you'll see clearly enough to help your brother. Now, it's humorous to me that 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 verse in Matthew 7, 1 is a verse that some people memorize. In fact, I've known people that memorize that verse that don't know any other verse in the Bible. Judge not. Some people use it as a defense. Start to look at their life or open up their life or question their life and they say, judge not, judge not. Now, I know Jesus wasn't saying that we shouldn't make judgments because if you read Matthew chapter 7, where he says, judge not, in verse 1, in verse 15, he says, beware of false teachers because you will know them by their fruit. When you listen to someone teaching and speaking on behalf of God, you better make some judgments. You better take what they say and see if it squares with the Word of God. And Jesus says you need to look at the fruit of their life and make sure they've got the fruit of righteousness in their lives. So you can technically say you're not to be a judge, but you're to be a fruit inspector. Jesus wasn't banishing all judgments when he said this. The other way people use this is, they, I, I see you fall into a sin, and I say, well, I guess I should judge not. I'll just stick my head in the sand and ignore what you're doing. And so I cop out of my responsibility. Jesus didn't mean that. Because later in the book of Matthew, in chapter 18 and verse 15, he said, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. When I see you fall into sin, I'm not to criticize you, I'm to confront you. And I'm not to go public with it, I'm to go private with it. I'm to come to you. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6.1, If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. How do we do it? He says, first, I want you to be spiritual. What's that mean? That means I've gotten honest with God about the telephone pole in my eye so that I can now see clearly. And then he says, I'm not to go with the spirit of judgment. I'm to go with the spirit of gentleness. So when I'm aware of some sin in your life, I first make sure I've got my house in order. And then I only go to one person about it. I don't go to the pastor. I don't go to my friends. I don't call speak out. I don't put it on Facebook. I don't write it in my blog. Go to one person. You. And I keep it as private as possible. If that person is repentant of that sin because I have lovingly brought it to their knowledge. I'm never to tell another person. So there are necessary judgments that we have to make, but James is not addressing the person who is making necessary judgments. James is addressing the person whose desire is not to restore, their desire is to tear down. James is addressing the person whose spirit is not that of gentleness. Their spirit is that of superiority. 
James is addressing those of us who are playing God by judging and condemning other people. And the log that is in our eye is the log of pride. And James gives us a couple reasons why you don't want to play this game. Number one, it's unloving. At the end of verse 11, James says, when you speak against your brother, you're speaking against the law. When you judge your brother, you are actually judging the law. Now, what law is he talking about? Well, earlier in the book of James, in chapter 2 and verse 8, he talked about the royal law. And here's what it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said it this way in Galatians 5.14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. So James is saying, when you judge another person, you think you're on the side of the law. Actually, by your very judging, you are breaking the law because you're not loving your brother. You are not doing to your neighbor what you would have your neighbor do to you. You are doing the very opposite of that. And so the person who judges thinks they're being very law-abiding. And James says, no. You're breaking the law because you're not loving your brother. And then the second thing is, you're not qualified or you're not justified to be judging. Look at verse 12 again. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy, but who are you? See, the qualifications for judging is you have to be the lawgiver, which means you have to be the source of all truth, and you have to have access to all the facts. Are you qualified? We don't even have access to all the facts, but that never stops us when we're gossiping, does it? We don't know all the details. We don't know it all, but we judge anyway. James says you're not qualified. And then the second qualification is you have to be the one who's able to save and to destroy. In other words, you're you're able to carry out the sentence, and we can't do that. We can destroy, we certainly can't save, because there's only one who can save, and that's the one who was nailed to a cross for you and me. So James says there's only one who is qualified, one lawgiver, one judge, one who's able to save and to destroy. Judging is reserved for God. So if you are not God, you need to take your robe off, get down off the judge's chair, and let God be God. The devil thinks there's more than one judge. You know what the word devil means? It means slanderer. And that's what he does. Revelation 12.10 says he accuses the brethren before God night and day. He is standing before God accusing you, if you're a believer here, 24-7. Which tells me that you're never more like the devil than when you're slandering someone else. 
playing God with other people is not a game you want to play. Because when you judge other people, you are breaking the law of love and you are usurping the place of God. You are elbowing God off his judgment seat. And then the second version of the game is playing God by yourself. There's a solitaire version. Look at verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. You say, what's wrong with that? Well, if you look at verse 13, there's no mention of God. This is a plan for life that leaves God out. And when we rule our own lives and run our own show and call our own shots, we are playing God. In this version of the game, you're not sitting on the judgment seat. You have gone over and sat on God's throne. And the rules for this game are real simple. Choose your own time, today or tomorrow. Select your own location, such and such a city. Set your own schedule, I'll spend a year there. Arrange your own activities, I'll engage in business. And predict your own success, I'll make a profit. And don't let God even enter the equation. That's it. Now, don't misunderstand this passage. James is not saying don't plan. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with making a profit. What James is saying is, don't plan as if you are in sovereign control. Jesus said in Luke 14, 28, no one would build a tower without sitting down and calculating the cost, making a plan. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. I think too many Christians plan too little. Some of us are like the guy who said, I never bring a lunch to work in case I get fired before noon. We don't have a plan. Some Christians say, I don't plan because Jesus might come back today. That was the problem in the church at Thessalonica. A lot of people were quitting their jobs to wait for Jesus to come back. And so Paul had to write to them and say, if you don't work, you don't eat. While you're waiting for Jesus to come back, get a job. You can't spiritualize this. You need a plan for this life. The best advice I ever got when I was a young Christian was this. Plan as if the Lord is not coming back in your lifetime. But live as if He's coming back today. That's good advice. Plan as if He's not coming back in your lifetime because you don't know, but live. Grab every opportunity as if He's coming back today. There's nothing wrong with the plans of verse 13 except that they leave God out. 
And some of us talk very loudly about believing in God. But when it comes to planning our business, our career, our schooling, we are practical atheists. Or to put it more accurately, we're playing God. Now there's two problems with this game that James points out in verse 14. The first problem is that life is unpredictable. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. One of the problems with planning your own life is that you don't know. You're talking about next year, and you can't even guarantee tomorrow. Have you ever noticed that life has a big if in the middle? I-F. Life is iffy. The ER is full of people who have other plans. The graveyard is full of people who had other plans. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. See, the only thing you know about tomorrow is that you don't know. So you need to be saying with David in Psalm 31.15, My times are in your hands. I don't know what the future holds but I know who holds the future. And then the second problem. First is that life is unpredictable. Second problem you have is that life is brief. Verse 14 goes on to say, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James says your life is like the steam over a teapot. You see it for a fleeting moment And then it's gone. It's like your breath on these cold mornings. You see it hanging there in the air for a second, and it's gone. Life is brief. The Bible uses other metaphors for your life. It says it's like a cloud that you see in the sky, and then it vanishes away. It's like a shadow. You see a shadow as long as the sun is up, and when the sun sets, it's gone. It's like a flower. You see a flower come up in the spring and it's beautiful and it's full of life and the next thing you look over and it's withered and it's wilted and it's gone. That's the way your life is. We are temporal. I tell people all the time, we are terminally ill. Every one of us. That's why I had to use just for men on this little goatee I'm trying to grow. I don't, I don't want you to know that I'm dying. We are one heartbeat away from eternity. And we don't know when this heart is going to stop beating. Someone has said about the time your face clears up, your mind begins to go. Someone else said, life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. 
You see, we would be foolish to say with absolute confidence what we'll be doing a year from now because we're too fragile and life is too fleeting. As I look over this crowd, it would not surprise me if we are not all here a year from now. I don't mean here in this room, I mean here on this planet. In fact, statistically, it probably should surprise me if we were all here a year from now. And yet, many of us plan as if that's a guarantee. I like what Stephen Levine said. He said, if you knew you were going to die soon and had only one phone call you could make, who would you call and what would you say and why are you waiting? There are two problems with playing God by planning out your own life. Life is unpredictable, and life is brief. So what's the solution? Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You should be saying, Lord willing. Now, when I grew up, people used this as a cliche all the time. I heard it nonstop. People say, I'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. I think if we use this phrase too much, it trivializes the phrase. I'll have a hamburger, Lord willing. I'll shoot par on the back nine, Lord willing. I don't think James is saying, use a little phrase. We do that sometimes within Jesus' name. We just say it because Jesus said to say it. We don't even think about what it means to say that. We can trivialize a phrase, but he's not talking about using a phrase. I think what James is saying is the whole attitude of our life ought to be, it's up to God. Whatever I'm going to do tomorrow is up to God. That's the attitude of our heart. If we're honest, most of us want a 911 God. I want to plan my life, and God, you be there in case there's an emergency. I don't need you, God, but stay near the phone. That's the kind of God we prefer, and that's the kind of God we express because we plan without him. What are your plans as you sit here this morning? Are you planning to go back to school? Are you planning to marry? Maybe you're planning to divorce. Are you planning a career change? Are you planning to retire? Let me ask you something. Have you talked to God about those plans? You see, God wants to be the center of our lives, and that includes our plans. For hundreds of years, Christians used to write at the end of their letters, the DV, which is Latin for Deo Valente, 
Lord willing. Because all our plans are contingent on that. But that shouldn't just be something that comes at the end of our plans. That should be something that comes at the beginning of our plans. There are only three things you can do with your life. You can spend it. You can waste it. Or you can invest it. You can spend it. You can waste it or you can invest it. You say, well, how do I invest it? Here's how you invest it. You stop praying, God bless what I'm doing. And you start praying, God help me to do what you're blessing. You let God be the center of all of your life, including your plans. And if you don't do that, James says in verse 16, but as it is, if you're going to plan without God, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. When I make plans without God, I'm being boastful. I'm being arrogant. I'm acting as if I know what my life will be like tomorrow. I'm acting as if I'm going to live forever. I am pretending to be in sovereign control when I should be in submissive dependence upon the Lord. And when I do that, the only one I'm fooling is me. Not fooling God. Not even fooling you. Just fooling myself. There's the game playing God. You can play it with others by judging. Or you can play it by yourself, by ruling. But here's the thing. Verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, that's a verse you may be familiar with, but maybe you haven't looked at it in the context. It's a broad principle, but what does it mean in the context? Well, James is saying, now you know. So now it's not a game to play God. Now it's sin to play God. It's sin to judge your brother. It's sin to run your own life. So would you do something with me this morning as we close our service? I hope this is a convicting passage for you. It was a convicting passage for me. Would you do something with me this morning? Would you stop playing games? And let God be God in us. Say, God, I'm stepping down from the judgment seat. I'm not qualified. 
I'm stepping down from your throne because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I'm just a vapor that's here for a little while. God, I'm going to stop playing games. I'm going to stop playing God because I'm tired of it. I can't do it. And I'm going to let you be God in my life. I'm going to let you be the judge, and I want you to start by judging my heart and show me the telephone pole in my own eye that I'm not seeing because you're the only one that can change that because you're the only one who came and died in my place to deliver me and save me and redeem me. So judge my heart and let me see my own heart so that I'm not spending my life pointing at other people. I want to see you change me. God be God in me. Start judging me. And then help me to walk in your path, in your way, in your steps. What are God's steps? My steps are judging other people. God's steps are love. God's going to lead you in the path of love if you let him. And you're going to step down from the judgment seat condemning other people and you're going to start laying down your life for other people because that's what Jesus called you to do because that's what he did for you. So it's really saying I want to be like Jesus. I want to be honest and open about my heart and what's there. I want God to judge me every day so I can get rid of that stuff. And I want to walk the way he wants me to walk, not as a judge, but as a sacrifice for other people. Would you do that today with me as we close the service?